Welcome to Mosaic, a podcast about theology and theologizing in Singapore, Asia and beyond. Brought to you by Singapore Bible College. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Mosaic Season 2. My name is Benita Lim and together with Justin Lee, we will be your hosts for this podcast. Hello everyone, good to be back for another season. Yeah, so today we have a very special guest on our show, Dr. Ellen Ye, who will be talking with us on a very unique topic, which I'm sure we don't often hear about in our region of Asia. But before we dive into our topic, I would like to first introduce Dr. Ye and ask him a little question about himself so that we can get more familiar with him. So Dr. Ellen Ye is Tenured Professor of Intercultural Studies and Missiology at Biola University in California, USA. His areas of geographical expertise are Latin America and China, and he's interested also in generational dynamics, particularly ministry to Gen Z. He is also a man who wears many hats. He serves on the Board of Trustees for the International Theological Seminary and the Foundation for Theological Education in Southeast Asia. He's the Learning Synthesis Manager for the Luzon Generations Conversation and a Research Fellow with the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton College. He's also an adjunct Professor of World Christianity at Palm Beach Atlantic University and an Annual Summer Professor for Missions for Campus Crusade for Christ Institute of Biblical Studies. So Dr. Ye earned his BA from Yale, his MD from Gordon Conwell, his MTH from Edinburgh, and DPhil from Oxford. He's been, yeah, you know, all over 60 countries on every continent. Wow. To study, speak at conferences, to do missions at work and experience the culture. He's also the author of Polycentric Missiology, a 21st century mission from everyone to everywhere. And he has co-edited a book with Tite Tieno the former dean of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. The book is called Majority World Theologies, Theologizing from Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Ends of the Earth. And he's an avid marathon runner and violin player. And he's joyfully married to his wife, Ariana, who's also a professor at Biola, and they have a delightful son, Asher. So hi, Dr. Ye, thanks for being on our show. Hello, I'm so glad to be with you. I'm honored that you asked me to be here on this podcast. Yeah, it's our honor too to have you. But before we get into our conversation, we would like to let our listeners get to know you beyond the illustrious <laughs> official biography. I noticed that on top of academia, you're a person of very diverse interests. So from running marathons to playing the violin, and I'm always very curious when I meet a marathon runner because I cannot run long distance like for my life. So I would like to ask, you know, why marathons? And has there been a particular marathon race that was memorable for you and why? Yeah, you know, this is sort of a funny answer. But the reason why I run marathons is because I'm really terrible at most sports. So I grew up not being good at any sport. But then part of me is I'm very much about grit, like perseverance, and I will not fail at things. And so I said, you know, the one thing I do have is endurance. So mm -hmm. I'm going to become a runner. And so when I was in high school, I ran cross country. And I know the football players would all make fun of us and say that, you know, that that's not really a sport. But I would look at them and I wouldn't say this to them, but I would think, you know, there's different kinds of toughness. Toughness of a football player, you can like tackle someone. But the toughness of a runner is that you can run for miles. And, and I'm thinking, I want to see you football players try to run many miles and see if you won't fall over you know, after just a mile. And I think the toughness of Jesus is more like that. Jesus was not an offensive tackle, you know? His was more of a toughness of endurance, right? He endured the cross. So I'm 
timeline. I think this is more biblical. <laughs> Plus, running is the only sport that's mentioned in the Bible, right? Paul talks about it as an analogy for the Christian faith. So <laughs> I'm very like, true. Very there true. you go. I've run on four different continents. I'm trying to do all seven continents, including Antarctica. Yes, they actually do have a marathon there. Wow. One of my favorites was Rio de Janeiro. That was so fun to run in Brazil. And you run past all the famous landmarks like Christ Redeemer statue and Copacabana Beach, etc. Also, the London Marathon was very special because at the end, the Royals were giving out the medals. Wow. And so I ran across the finish line and I saw, who do you want to have the put the medal around your neck? Prince William? Prince Harry? Princess Kate? <laughs> you know, I was like, what? I don't know how I choose. And then I chose. Oh, you got to choose? I, I got to choose. I mean, you get to line up. <laughs> so so I, I chose William uh, because I'm like, he's the future king. So I have a picture with William putting a medal around my neck. Uh -huh. There you go. That was, that was really you don't special. get that in football. You don't get that in football. No, no. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's also true. And plus, marathon running is, is international. So that's why, yeah, football is only in America. And so mm. marathon running is the only sport that you can do anywhere in the world. Yeah, and in many sports, actually, like stamina wins games, especially when it becomes a long-drawn match and it's tight and close. Mm -hmm. The person who has more endurance usually is the one that comes out top. So. That's right. It's an analogy for life. I'm telling you, it's true. That's right. And PhDs. It's biblical too. PhDs. <laughs> PhD PhDs. That kind of stamina, that got me through my PhD. It really did. Oh, I need that. I need that. Great. Thank you so much. As I've mentioned, your last name is Ye. Can you tell us more about what this means uh, you know, and your heritage and whether this played a role into getting you into intercultural studies? Absolutely. So Ye is Mandarin, Chinese for leaf. And I love it because it reflects Revelation 22.2, which is my missiological theme verse. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So I see this mm. as an eschatological vision of the future of what happens when missions is successful. So yeah. I love it. And definitely my exploration into my heritage of being Chinese American, of having two cultures, this bicultural liminal space mm -hmm. did spark my interest in intercultural studies for sure. I'm so inspired. Now I need to go and look for a verse that suits my uh, last name too. Fun fact, so Justin and I, we also have botanical last names. So mine is Strong Mu Ling which is forest. That's right. And then Justin is Lee, which is a type of plum. Yeah, I love it. I don't think there are any verses in the Bible about plums and missions though. So I don't think I'll be as lucky as Alan. <laughs> I bet you can find one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll look. Somewhere in the Psalms or Proverbs, I bet there's uh, one. So good. Well, we can look forward to a fruitful conversation today. Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> nice. We're, we're keeping that. We're not going to cut that one out, okay? <laughs> so like, you know, Alan, you're talking about the liminal space and for yourself as a Chinese American, uh, you know, living in America, America, right? As a minority, there's this part of America that's also very present, which is the Latino side of America. You know, today's topic is what does the church in Latin America have to do with the church in Asia? And I think something that I realized that we seldom get to hear about, which is how Latin America engages Christianity. And as you have mentioned in your bio, you have been looking at Latin America and China respectively. So you know, did your research bring you to see connections between these two places? And, you know, what are some continuities or discontinuities that came up? Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons I love being in California is I feel Biola and Southern California is a Pacific Rim center. It's kind of where the meeting place of Asia and Latin America is, right? And so we see so many of these cultures intermingling here. And I think that's really special. Also, that's one of the beauties of Israel. You know, a lot of people think, why was Israel God's chosen land? And I'm like, it's where Africa, Asia, and Europe all meet. 
it's the crossroads of three continents. And so the gospel was poised to go three different directions. And I feel like California, you know, you can go North America, Asia, and Latin America because it's Pacific Rim. But even though there's an intermingling of the two cultures here, there is not often a lot of thought about the, how the two cohere. And the connection between the two places are not always immediately apparent. And definitely there's significant differences, right? Uh, religion is very different, right? Asia is so multi-religious with Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and et cetera. And Latin America is largely Catholic, mostly Christian. But even the Catholics is different from the Christians in Asia who are mainly Protestants. And of course, racial mix is very different. You think about China being pretty homogeneous. I know there are the Han Chinese as well as the four ethnic groups so you have the Han Man Mong Hui Jun, right? But the five stars on the Chinese flag, right? That's what they represent. But the Han is still like over 90% of China. So it's pretty homogeneous. Latin America is very mixed. You have mm -hmm. Mestizo people, which indigenous and Spaniard Europeans, and you have Black people who came over from Africa. And you have a lot of Asians too, like Peru. Lima has one of the oldest Chinatowns. Brazil mm -hmm. actually has the largest Japanese population outside of Japan. Mm -hmm. Latin America is so racially mixed. Uh, and then socioeconomically, yeah, there are a lot of parts of Asia that are pretty poor, but also a lot of parts that are really, really, really rich. And in Latin America, generally, most of the countries are still sort of in developing nation phases. Okay. All that being said, I feel like mm -hmm. both have a lot of similarities, and this is where I really want to highlight. Number one, Christianity. China and Latin America have both had to contend with the context of Marxism. So mm. with Mao Zedong and, for example, in Latin America with Che Guevara in Cuba. So these Christianities develop having to either fight with Marxism or to have to develop within Marxism. Even today in China, you have, you know, Zhonggohua, right? This uh, Sinicization. Mm. And it's almost a Marxist version of Christianity, if you will. But also Pentecostalism is booming in both places. I think of South mm. America. I think of China. I mean, so many many Pentecostals and the house churches and the basic ecclesial communities in Latin America. And both of them are now sending missionaries to the Middle East. China has the Back to Jerusalem movement, where it's traveling across mm. the old Silk Road, across Central Asia. And then Brazilians especially are sending a lot of people to the Middle East. And they don't have the political baggage that a lot of Americans would, you know, because they don't have a problem with Chinese people in general or South American people, right? So they're just like, okay with... The... So I think this is very interesting. Number two, uh, history. Uh, both of these were great empires, but they were conquered by Europe and or by missionaries. And so you think of the Aztecs and the Incas, you think of the Chinese and European conquistadors, etc. British and Portuguese uh, all came in. And today, I feel like they are still being conquered, but by manufacturing and outsourcing. So a different kind of conquering, it's economic. Third, there's uh, historical and cultural similarities between the two. Do you know that the Chinese and the Mayans are the only cultures in the world that value jade? Everyone else values gold, Interesting. but they really value jade. The Chinese and the Mayans had this similar pictogram system of writing rather than alphabet. They had very similar calendar systems in terms of their measuring time and the lunar calendar and all that. They have very similar architectural and spatial considerations like feng shui and something similar mm -hmm. exists in Latin America. And uh, mm -hmm. I think, is it because Latin Americans are originally Asian? Now, walk with me here. So <laughs> every scientist or anthropologist or ethnologist on Earth agrees that all of humanity has one source. 
right? The fact that every human on earth can interbreed with every other human on earth shows that we all come from one genetic lineage, okay? Now, some people say, you know, we originate from Africa. Other people, the Bible says we originate from Babylon, which is like a modern day Iraq, Middle East, Mesopotamia. But regardless, everyone agrees we all come from one source. Mm -hmm. So how did people get to the Americas? Either they went across the ice bridge across the Bering Strait from Russia to Alaska, or they sailed across the Pacific. You know, you see in the Disney movie Moana with all the, you know, they're sailing across from island to island hopping. Either way, Latin Americans come from Asia originally. And if you look at indigenous Native Americans and Aztecs and Mayans and Incas, a lot of them look Asian. So I think there's no surprise there's similarity between them. Number four, I would say there's present-day cultural similarities. There's collectivism in both cultures. Mm -hmm. There's the bicultural liminal thing that comes from immigration, right? From mm -hmm. having bilingualism, et cetera. There's some patriarchalism that exists in both cultures, chismo or Confucianism. And both are the fastest growing ethnic groups in the United States. And then there's also the global widespreadness of the language. I mean, aside from English, Chinese and Spanish are probably the two most widely spoken languages in the world. And they also have the largest cities when you think about not just Shanghai and Beijing, but you think of Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro and Mexico City. So there's a lot of similarities between these. I just like to see these connections and highlight these similarities. That's one of the things I noticed when I first came to study in the US, which was that I definitely found a lot more touch points with my friends from Latin America or who are Latino in their background. And I was quite surprised to find out when one of my friends from Panama, he told me that his grandma is Chinese. And it's so interesting, even when it comes to food, when it comes to the way we prioritize family and community, right? Like you mentioned, the collectivism, I definitely found a lot of resonances. Um, Justin, do you have any thoughts too? Yeah, of course. I mean, I didn't have a lot of Latin American friends growing up, but yeah, I had a few here or there. Um, you know, one thing that's true for anyone who comes from Southern California who has grown up in that part of the U.S. is that there's some part of that like Latino culture, at least in terms of food that we all absorb. As a Southern Californian, when I go overseas, one of the first things that I miss is tacos because oh, yeah. I grew up eating yeah. that food culture. But there's something about the sort of interknittedness, uh, interwovenness of family. There's something about the sort of values that we share that has a lot of similarity. And, and for me, growing up as a minority is something that I definitely noticed in friends and classmates who were from Latin American backgrounds. So. And also, Justin, I'm sure you're pretty familiar with the Kogi truck, which is yeah, Korean yeah. tacos, basically, yes. right? I mean, Southern California has the largest Korean population outside of Korea and also the largest mm. Mexican population outside side of Mexico. And it's so true. of course, the two cultures will meet and they put Korean Kogi, you know, barbecue meat inside a taco. And I'm like, this is brilliant. It's like the best. Yeah, it works. Okay, I need to try yeah, this. You should, you should. And then also, if you go to Peru, on every street corner, they have chifas, the C-H-I-F-A, and that's their version of Chinese food, right? And so if you mm. go to any Peruvian restaurant, even here in Southern California, their most famous dish is called the Lomo Saltado. Oh, so good. And it basically <laughs> is a Chinese stir fry yeah. with Peruvian yep. spices, right? Yeah. So I'm oh, like, yeah. this is Chinese food, right? <laughs> so I mean, when I was at Biola, we used to go to Mario's a lot before it closed down. Yes, exactly. I uh, love that place. And, you know, you can taste the soy sauce in the Lomo Saltado and the fries and everything and the little cilantro coriander that's sprinkled onto it. You're like, this is Asian food. This is Latino. This, this is everything. <laughs> you know? It is. All right. I'll, I'll need to steer the conversation away from food, but I'll make a side note to get the, all these like restaurant names from you later. Yes. 
Thank you so much for sharing and for both of you to weigh in also on your experience in SoCal. And I think that this is also one of the reasons why I thought that this topic is so interesting when I got the chance to study with Oscar Garcia Johnson on epistemologies of the global south. I found so many similarities and I do wonder why we don't hear more about them or more scholars in Asia engaging them or in general why do you think that's the case? I think there is this stigma that has been attached to Latin American theologies that it's liberal, right? Do you mm. hear the word liberation theology? And by the way, liberation theology is only one type of Latin American theology. It does not signify all mm -hmm. of Latin American theologies. But I do think a lot of evangelicals steer away from that and they you know, sort of have this allergic reaction to it. But let me unpack the difference between liberation theology and evangelical theology. Yes, please. Liberation theology simply stated is theology that starts with the context or the situation. And evangelical theology is theology that attempts to start with the Bible, okay? But often the two have the same ending points, if you think about it. For example, both will conclude, hopefully, <laughs> that God cares for the poor or cares about race or gender issues, right? You know, you see Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and all of these are at play there in John chapter 4. He's talking to her and she's like, I'm a woman, you're a man. So there's like gender issues here. And she's like, you shouldn't be talking to me. And then she's like a scandalous woman. So there's like social mm -hmm. class difference there. And then she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. And she's like, why are you talking to me? So, and Jesus is very aware of all of this. And she's very aware of all this. And, and he breaks those dividing walls. And he says, it doesn't matter. I've come to save everybody, you know? And he, here's the thing. As an evangelical myself, I always start with the Bible. But as a missiologist, I recognize that context is nearly as important as scripture. And I think evangelical theologians, sometimes to their detriment, do not focus enough on context. Mm. So one of my favorite missiologists is Andrew Walls, uh, who just died a few years ago. He was the founder of the Center of Global Christianity or World Christianity at the University of Edinburgh, where I studied for a master's degree. He's one of my academic heroes. Andrew Walls says in one of his writings that there's the indigenizing principle and the pilgrim principle. Now, what's the difference between these two? Indigenizing principle means that every single Christian is a product of a time and a place and a culture. We cannot extricate ourselves from these things. Even by using language, we're using our culture. But then there's also the pilgrim principle, which says we're Christians, we're aliens and strangers of this world, we're not of this world, right? So really, it's both and. Okay, and these mm -hmm. things seem contradictory, but, you know, similar to Jesus being both God and man, you know, we are both indigenized and pilgrim. We're both of this world, but not mm -hmm. of this world, right? Yeah. Karl Barth, the famous neo-Orthodox theologian in the 20th century, famously said that we should always preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, meaning scripture, but also modern day context. And so if you only do one, but not the other, you're really missing a big piece of it. So I don't think liberation theologies are always wrong, just as I don't think that evangelical theology Theologies are always right if they leave out the context. But I do think that theology from the context of marginalization is something that both of them espouse. And this can help us understand and be like the early church more. You know, I think that too often evangelicals, especially in the West, do theology from the context of power, mm -hmm. riches, military might, you know, we're the ones in control. And if you look at the early church, that was not the case. They were poor, they were the minority, they were marginalized, they were spit upon, they, they did not have any power. And I think that if we truly look at the Bible, that I think there are some significant overlaps between liberation theology and evangelical theology. Thanks, Dr. Ye. So what I hear you saying is that instead of wholesale dismissal or embrace of any theology, right, liberal or not, it's important that we consider the reasons and context behind where they come from and apply it 
appropriately to our context. Absolutely. And I just feel like to completely dismiss the context is really doing us a disservice. Now, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Mm -hmm. But also, we don't want to only look at the context and dismiss scripture, because that could lead us to some bad conclusions as well. I think with liberation theology, one thing that we can note about it is that it was reacting very strongly to a certain maybe like a contextual approach to theology that was Mm. maybe over favoring academic ideas and people for the sake of doing so, but had very little to say to the poor and to context. And so maybe liberation theologians went a bit too far to only emphasize that maybe at the expense of others. And we might even say, as as I guess we'll talk about in just a moment, how those who are coming from, say, more evangelical backgrounds are trying to do something in a similar way, but maybe without throwing the baby out with the bathwater, again, to use that analogy or something like that. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Well said. Well, by the way, uh, yeah, Wallace is also a hero of mine as well. So glad you brought out that that principle. This is a Biola thing going on. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. do with Biola. Yeah. So uh, I actually have another question for Alan. One issue is that a lot of theologians and pastors in Latin America have had to deal with in both liberation theology and in evangelical circles is how to make sense of their faith um, in their own faith as distinct from Western Christianity, sometimes even in a post-Western Christianity framework. Some people might call this post-colonialism. Others might use the language of decolonizing. But in Latin America, generally speaking, how has this looked for better or for worse, and especially in the Protestant church, given that we have talked about liberation theology in the Protestant church, especially amongst evangelicals, what has this looked like? Um, In particular, you've mentioned with the growth of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity, what does this look like for the Latin American church? You know, uh, one of the things that missionaries have done historically, which has been uh, really a big mistake is to Uh, or Western missionaries, I should say, is go to the non-Western world or the majority world and try to completely wipe out their culture and replace it with Western Christianity. And what happens is you not only destroy their culture, but you also speak to them that their culture has not a grain of truth in it. And then they have to completely just accept Western forms. So they imbibe not only Christianity, but also Western culture. So it's like, oh, in order to be a Christian, I have to play the organ and you know, wear robes and, you know, et cetera. And that has nothing to do with Christianity. That's just a form. There's nothing about that in the Bible. And so if you look at Acts chapter 17, you see the Apostle Paul do something really kind of shocking. He's on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, Philosopher's Hill in Athens. He's speaking to the pagan Athenians and he's saying, men of Athens, I see you are very religious. Now, let me tell you that with all these altars of these foreign gods, to Paul it was foreign, but to these altars of all these gods, he says, I see one altar to the unknown God. And what does Paul Mm -hmm. say? He says, that is Jesus. And let me unpack that for you. I mean, this should blow our minds that he's telling the Athenians, you've secretly been worshiping Jesus all along. You didn't know it. And my job is not to wipe out your culture completely and replace it with Christianity. My job is to show you that there was a seed of Christianity within you to be begin with, and I just have to uncover it for you and unpack it for you. Now, that is called the principle of redemptive analogy. And this was really unpacked by missiologist Don Richardson in his books, Peace Child, in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts. So this principle of redemptive analogy, you see, for example, in Latin America with the Incas, they were actually worshiping this god called Viracocha, which was manifested to himself as a trinity and had a son and had angels around him and, you know, was a bringer of light. And now not everything cohered exactly with Christianity, but 
If you were a missionary, a conquistador from Spain, and you arrived in Peru, and you heard this from the Incas, what would you have done? Well, I'll tell you what the conquistadors did do. They said, oh, you're completely wrong. Throw out all your pagan satanic worship, and let me just replace that with Christianity. Mm -hmm. Rather, the better way is to say, wow, you've got so much right here, but a little bit wrong, right? <laughs> like, let me help to course correct you here, right? You build on their culture of what they've already got right. You think about it, all around the world, there are flood narratives. In every single ancient culture, there's a flood narrative. And instead of saying, well, all of you guys are wrong, you say, yes, there was a flood. And you can see this in the Bible. So let me tell you the true story of the flood, right? Even in China, you know, the famous missionary James Legg came from mm -hmm. Scotland and he went to China and he went up to the Temple of Heaven in Beijing, which is dedicated to Shangdi, mm -hmm. who is the chief god of a pantheon of gods, kind of like Zeus, you know, in Mount Olympus, right? But instead of saying this is all wrong, he said, Shangdi is the same as Yahweh. And he sang the doxology to Shangdi while standing on the Temple of Heaven in Beijing. This was crazy revolutionary. But this is the kind of thing that we should be thinking about and saying, you know what, there is a seed of truth within every culture in the world, because every single person, no matter how pagan, is a child of God, was created by our Lord and is made in the image of God. So let's find that seed of truth within everyone. So here's the thing. In this day and age, we are seeing as Christians are booming around the world, more so in the majority world than in the West, this is kind of a Copernican revolution. You know, Copernicus was the guy who said, you know, it's not the sun that revolves around the earth, but it's the earth that revolves around the sun, right? He kind of flipped the script. Well, that's what's happening. Now there are more Christians in Africa, Asia, and Latin America than in the West, right? And I feel like um, this has allowed us to suddenly hear from the majority world. They are doing theologies that are actually something that we in the West need to hear. For example, a gospel of honor and shame, an acknowledgement of suffering, which is something the West doesn't know how to do. <laughs> a more robust pneumatology, more about the Holy Spirit. I think we're so Christocentric, we just leave out the third person of the Trinity. But Jesus says, but that's the person of the Trinity who's with you today, right? So in many ways, again, my theme here is be more like the early church. And I feel like African, Asian, and Latin American Christians can help the Western church be more like the early church. Instead of saying, let's just cast out the West, you know, but saying, no, actually, instead of saying uh, Christianity is a Western imposition, say this is indigenous to all cultures around the world. Thanks a lot for that. That's a very uh, insightful answer. I mean, for me in my own teaching, I think I tried to integrate this idea of the principle of the redemptive analogy as it's been implemented in various places around the world where the gospel really has come in and settled. So, you know, the, the examples of using the title Shanti, using not, not Viracocha as much, but say like the Karen in, in, in modern day Myanmar, people like that. Examples of in, in Sub-Saharan Africa of how the gospel has come forth and grown are examples of how God has sort of revealed himself in general revelation in ways that maybe haven't been expected by, say, Western missionaries when they did arrive, which is, is always a shock, but always a blessing, I think, to hear about that. Absolutely. And let me put one word of caution here. General revelation by itself does not save. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Paul still had to go to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 and say, Okay, this unknown God, let me tell you that that's Jesus. But he did say you were partly there already on your own. Missionaries just need to bring them the rest of the way. So they still need special revelation. But we do not have to denigrate other cultures and completely demolish them in order to get them to accept Christianity. In fact, Christianity should be a respecter of cultures. The late Laman Sane from mm -hmm. Yale University wrote a book called Translating the Message. And he's saying this is the hallmark of Christianity. The great hallmark is its ability to translate. And so this is really an amazing thing. And so, yeah, 
you can call God Shangdi, even though this was originally a pagan word. But that's what Christianity does, right? Because we take pagan things and baptize them, right? <laughs> and use them for Christianity. That's what we are. We're baptized pagans. Even in Africa, you see the Nigerians are using their ancient pagan god, Oludumare, and they're using that for the Christian god, because instead of using the English word. So you got to use the indigenous words and the indigenous forms, and then people feel like they own Christianity for themselves. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing topic. It's something that I think if we get more into, we can uh, just go on and on about this, right? Yeah. Uh, one thing that actually might be interesting to Alan is at SBC next month, we're having an honor-shame consultation where we're inviting a number of different scholars, some from Asia, but we're trying to make it international. So we have at least one African mm. guest coming. I think we're supposed to have a Latin American. I don't know if actually maybe anyone's coming from Latin America, but we're doing an honor-shame contextualization kind of mini conference. So uh, that's something that's quite interesting that we're doing here next month. So it's going to be the beginning of September. That's amazing. And I feel like missiologists and missionaries around the world are now waking up to the fact that the gospel is not just about innocence and guilt, it is also about honor shame. In fact, maybe mm -hmm. even more about honor mm -hmm. shame. And in fact, we see this with Gen Z as well. Gen Z in the United States are more resonating with the gospel of honor and shame than with innocence guilt. Yeah, see, that's another topic that we do have to get to. Maybe we'll have to have you back on and ask you about. <laughs> yeah, we should. People are curious about how do we minister to Gen Z? And one thing that I've shared in class is there was a famous interview with Kerry Newhoff with Tim Keller a couple years back, where he talks about how to preach the gospel to the next generation. And it's very interesting, even Keller's like early thoughts on that, that were not fully formed, had a lot to say about that. And I think honor shame does sort of come up in that conversation, but not in those terms, but there's a lot we can say about that too. Absolutely. Here's another question then, given the lessons that you just shared with us about thinking theologically in the majority world, what do you think the church in Asia can learn specifically from how the Latin American church and even Latin American theologians? have responded to this reality of global Christianity? How can we learn from how they've moved beyond, say, Western issues as their theological center and paradigms for theology that come from the West to doing things or talking about issues that are more contextual for them, responding to issues that they're facing as well? This is something which is so wonderful that we can learn from each other, right? Africans, Asians, Latin Americans always just have our dialogue partners as white Westerners, but we don't dialogue with each other and we need to. Mm -hmm. And a beautiful thing happened in 2013 Peter Chow from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. He got together with Juan Martinez from Fuller Seminary, and the mm -hmm. two of them put together a conference called HANA, which stood for Hispanic, Asian, North American. And it was a consultation on theology and ministry, bringing together 60 Hispanic and Asian North Americans, pastors and theologians. So 30 and 30 of each. And we got together in Chicago and we spent several days together theologizing. And it was amazing. There's so many similarities between the two. And as I've already outlined, but I do think that number one, the church in Asia is succumbing too much to the West version of Christianity. Whereas I feel like Latinos are still sort of pushing back. And I think we need to learn from Latinos because otherwise we're just becoming whitewashed, if you will, right? We're thinking that the only true version of Christianity is the white Western version of Christianity, which is cerebral, triumphalistic, modern and postmodern, capitalistic, imperialistic, individualistic, professionalistic. 
right? That's the kind of faith that the West has. We're succumbing to that. And Latin America reminds us what we used to be as Asians and what we should be. In other words, more like the early church. Again, that's my theme, which is a theology of lament, of sojourning or pilgrimage, of collectivism, including intergenerational issues, of pre-modernism. In other words, the West has this flaw of the excluded middle where they leave out mm -hmm. spiritual realities. We believe in, in the West, we believe in God and we believe in the material world, but we leave out the whole middle section mm -hmm. of spirits and demons and angels, demigods and everything like that. So that's the first thing. Number two, as I've already alluded to, and a lot of America has had more of a fighting spirit against the oppression of the West. And I think sometimes Asia, to our detriment, have made a Faustian deal, right? So we've gained a lot of riches, but we've sort of sold our soul. So I think this really needs to go back to the original you know, and number three, I'm just going to say this. My wife is ethnically Jewish. And when we got married, I realized something. There's a lot of similarities between Jews and Asians. Okay. And it's, in some ways, it's not surprising because Jews are from Israel, which is on the Western end of Asia. And Chinese are on the Eastern end of Asia. It's the same continent, essentially. <laughs> but Jews are Eastern peoples. They're Semitic peoples. And I just remember uh, when I got married to my wife and we're kind of joking, but also this is true, you know, both cultures have a high value on education, mm -hmm. hard work and perseverance, respect to the elders. And when you're going shopping, always trying to get a good deal. <laughs> Classical music. I mean, you think of Yo-Yo Ma and Isaac Perlman. And, you know, when I was an undergrad at Yale University, I played the violin. I swear to you, every single person in the Yale Symphony Orchestra was either Asian or Jewish. Okay, So it's <laughs> like, but there, there's so many similarities between the two. And I just feel like, why are Asians not leaning into the fact that we are like the early church and instead mm -hmm. leaning into the trying to be white western and then which leads us to trying to become rich trying to become mega churches trying to be the ones in power and i'm like no you know we need to realize that our latino brothers and sisters can really teach us something about returning it's not a revolution it's a reformation it's a back to the beginning and it's a more authentic christianity i think and i think like just now what you were sharing that god's heart for the poor and those still in liminal spaces. Actually, we all are, right? But it's so easy for us to get sucked in once we are on the better end of social economic status, especially maybe in Singapore. We start to forget or not see that the poor and the weak are really among us. You know, we make ourselves the center of things. And I once surveyed about 30 pastors in Singapore on whether they've heard of theology from Latin America and like almost no one has touched it or things high of it. And so, you know, what I hear from what you're saying that there are so many things, so many touch points that we can engage with and learn from. That's posed as a big reminder. There's still so many people who are poor in Asia, still in the millions. I think even more so in Singapore, where we are pretty well healed. We have one of the highest, not the highest, maybe I need to check this, but the GDP are in the world. And we don't see how much we still need to humble ourselves to learn from Latin America. And also if we are bringing the gospel to other parts of Asia, how do we not just view other parts of Asia as like a charity right? or some people, people on a lower plane, right? To reach the gospel with, I think there's just so much in there that we can learn from. 
Justin, any thoughts from you before we close? No, I mean, I really appreciate this because having now lived in Singapore for the last four or so years and thinking through what theologizing and theology look like here, the points that, that Alan has been mentioning are very, very true. I think there's a sense of how do we learn to lean into what makes us us and not mm. trying to become somebody else in our faith. And I think that's one thing that the Latin American church does better, maybe in part because there's been different historical political circumstances that have affected things. And there's a little bit of the veneer has been removed, but on the same way, like there's a lot that we can learn because there's similar things that they've gone through compared to the church in Asia that they've responded to and sometimes in some senses, better ways, maybe. I, I don't know. Just a thought. And can I say a note about Singapore? Even though Singapore is really rich, I think there are some things going for it in Jesus's upside down kingdom economy. Mm. Singapore is very small. So I think that's actually a good thing for Singapore, <laughs> you know, to not be the biggest country in the world. In fact, one of the smallest. Secondly, Singapore is very multi-ethnic. I think that's beautiful. And, you know, Christianity is not the majority in Singapore. You're surrounded by Hindus and Buddhists and surrounded by Indians and Malays and straight Paranakan people and a lot of different types of cultures. And also Singapore is in the midst of Asia, in which actually Africa and Latin America have a lot more Christians than Asia. So Christianity is still a minority religion within Asia. Mm -hmm. And I think all of these things are really good for Singapore. It can prevent Singapore from getting too big for its own britches, if you will. And it keeps it on its toes. And that's actually good. You know, I think about Hebrews chapter 11, where the hall of faith with all of those people on pilgrimage, and those people were all commended for their faith, because they did not receive what was promised. The people who did receive what was promised, who got the promised land, writer of Hebrews says, ah, I don't have time to talk about them, right? But he commends for the faith those who are still on the journey and those who are still struggling. And I think that's a good place to be. That's good. Before I close, just one final question for Dr. Ye, which would be, could you just briefly give us some practical suggestions on how we can further engage Latin American theology for people who may be interested in finding out more? And maybe any book recommendations, especially, or anything like that. Sure, sure. Well, there are so many different types of Latin American Christians. Um, and in case anybody is afraid of liberation theology, especially those who are Catholic, and there's a lot of those. There's a lot of really solid evangelical theologians from Latin America the big ones I would recommend are Rene Padilla, Samuel Escobar, Orlando Costas. All of these guys were amazing authors and producers of theology. And they were part of a group known as the FTL, which is the Fraternidad Teológica Latinoamericana, the Latin American Theological Fellowship, if you will. And this group still exists today, and they're still producing a lot of scholarship. So I would recommend you sign up for the Journal of Latin American Theology, JLA. And that's actually produced by the Latin American Theological Fellowship. And guess what? It's all in English. So these are all Latino evangelical theologians who are writing mm. in English for a global audience because they mm. realize that if they write in Spanish, it may not be that accessible for everyone around the world. So they produce this journal in English. It's really amazing. And hey, it's great for Singapore, right? Because you guys all speak English for the most part. Yeah, we have to make use of our Western education. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and uh, Rene Padilla was the father of a type of theology called Mission Integral, which integral mission or holistic mission. So basically, he's trying to say that evangelism and social justice are both necessary for mission. And John Stott with the Lausanne movement picked up on this. And he said, evangelism and social justice are like two wings of a bird or two blades of a pair of scissors. They're not the same thing, but they're equal and they must work together. You cannot just have one wing or one blade. It doesn't work that way. And I really think that this is the heart of Jesus. So those are 
some uh, people I would recommend for your reading and for your research? Thank you so much, Dr. Ye. I've been really stimulating so much insights. And I love how you just take the Bible and you take theology, you take missiology, you take sociology even, you know, and, and bring these together to give us a very holistic picture of why and what Latin American theology is about and how to go about engaging it. So I would like to plug your two books again, because I've earlier mentioned them, and I think they will be really useful for our audience, our listeners, which are Majority World Theologies and Polycentric Missiology, looking to theologize from Singapore, Asia, and beyond. So we can see a passion for the gospel, understanding it both local and global. And uh, we are so grateful that you can be on our show today. Okay, Justin is... Oh! <laughs> I don't have the other one right now. Yeah, Justin just uh, <laughs> um, flexed that he has the book uh, in our Zoom call. So I hope today's episode has also helped all of us listeners and even Justin and myself to see better how some cultures that we hardly consider or engage are actually really wrestling deeply with matters not far from Asia and even biblical times. And we can gain so many valuable lessons and insights as to how we respond to struggles that many people in Asia and around the world continue to face today. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us. And until the next episode, this has been Mosaic. Thank you. This has been Mosaic, a podcast by Singapore Bible College. Special thanks to Hilary Lim and Micah Singapore for giving us permission to use their music for our show. We would love to hear any feedback, suggestions, or comments that you might have, especially for future episodes. So feel free to contact us through our website at sbc.edu.sg. You can check out the website to discover more about our degree programs, events, and publications. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating, or tell a friend. Thanks for listening.